Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Trevor Connor, here with Rob Pickles. If you've been in sport long enough, it's highly likely that you've suffered some sort of injury. In most cases, that injury may mean a couple of weeks on the couch and an awkward cast or brace. Sure, it's painful, and every day you feel like your fitness is slipping away, but you're back to your old self pretty quickly, and at worst, only lose part of your season. There is, however, another type of injury, the one that most athletes fear, the one that isn't measured in weeks or months, but years, if not the rest of your life. This is the severe break, loss of limb, spinal cord injury, or lasting head trauma. Severe injuries may take an enormous physical toll, but they also take a mental toll as well. Sometimes an athlete's body will fully recover, but their mental scars will keep them from ever performing the same way again. A serious injury can lead to losing a sense of self, losing one's social network, and a decline in emotional health. So in this episode, we talk about the serious injury. We dive into what to do when you or someone you're with experiences severe trauma, what the first few days after the injury can be like, and how to successfully navigate the years and months of rehabilitation that may be ahead. We brought in two people who have helped countless athletes navigate through the mental and physical rehabilitation of severe injury. Dr. Andy Pruitt has experienced with many athletes and guided both Taylor Finney and Chloe Dygert through bad leg breaks. Dr. Julie Emmerman has likewise counseled athletes through the emotional trauma that comes with the physical rehabilitation. Joining us remotely, we also hear from Taylor Finney, a retired elite cyclist who nearly lost his life hitting a guardrail at 50 miles per hour. He shares his experience of both his injury and how he successfully worked his way through it. Along with these guests, Wahoo Fitness Coach Neil Henderson, neuroscientist Dr. Scott Frey, and physiologist Dr. Steven Seiler weigh in as well. Ultimately, we hope listening to this episode proves to be a waste of your time. Now let's make you fast. In our newest release from The Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel, we explore the art and science of coaching master's athletes. Thanks to Joe Friel and many other coaches, there are more master's athletes than ever before, and they are taking on challenges once thought out of reach. Check out The Craft of Coaching Module 11, Coaching Master's Athletes, for guides to help master's athletes stay fast for years to come. Check out The Craft of Coaching at fasttalklabs.com. Well, welcome everybody to today's show. We have with us two of our favorite guests, Dr. Andy Pruitt and Dr. Julie Emmerman. Thanks for joining us. And you are here in the studio with us, which we're excited about. Glad to be here. It's really great to be here. So I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. And I think this is going to be one of those ones where we're probably going to get off outline quite a lot, go a lot of different places with this, but I think that's going to be a good thing. But let's talk about what this episode is about. And I'm going to start with a couple of weeks ago, I was on a group ride and a guy in front of me crashed. I flipped over him, pulled the rookie mistake of putting my hand out and uh, landed on my hand. I think I might've broken my wrist. That's an injury and it's annoying. It's a little bit frustrating. It hurts hasn't affected my cycling too much. I'm still on the bike. I'll be over it in a couple weeks. That's not the type of injury that we're talking about today. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about a, a sprain where you're, you're off for a couple weeks, but you're going to get back to it. Today, we are talking about that potentially career-ending injury or that injury that could take years to recover from or you might never recover from. This is something that I think all athletes fear, it's something that, unfortunately, a lot of athletes have gone through. 
And the reason we have both of you here is because there is both a large physical impact of this, but there's also a large mental impact to this. And I think, you know, we, we were talking offline right before the show, as Andy said, you can't really separate the two. So why don't we start with maybe Dr. Pruitt. Could you define what types of injuries are we talking about here when we talk about these really big, potentially career-ending injuries? I mean, the worst one, obviously, is a head or spinal cord injury where they have a permanent mental deficiency for the rest of their life or a spinal cord injury where they have a permanent physical disability for the rest of their life. I mean, that's true career-enders, life-changing career-enders. And then you've got the... The broken femur, you think about Baloki, you think about uh, Chloe Deigert, you think about Froome. The broken femur, that long bone in your upper leg, injury to that and the hip are tremendously long recoveries and long healing and loss of fitness, loss of who you are and all those things. So Chloe Deigert, who broke her femur just above her knee into a compound fracture, transecting her entire quadriceps. And, she, and she's starting the Women's Vuelta today two years later. So you talk about a long recovery with lots of false starts. The mental aspects of all of those, from the brain injury, the spinal cord injury, to the fractured femur, there are different variants of both physical and mental impacts from those injuries. But And everybody re- handles them differently, totally differently, right? Some people declare immediately that they're coming back, and others go, well, this might be a good time to sail off into the sunset and drink beer. Andy, I think it's interesting that you bring up femur fractures and hips specifically because a broken bone itself may or may not be a devastating injury. To put that into context, I'm somebody who's pretty good at crashing. That means 50% of the time I crash hard enough that I put myself in the hospital and the other 50% of the time nothing happens. And one of those for me was a broken collarbone that was pretty pretty severe broken collarbone in five pieces plate and 10 screws later, I was actually racing two months after the injury uh, cyclocross in Louisville, Kentucky. On the other side of it, I broke my hip, snapped the ball off my femur. Andy, you know this all too well, you know, and uh, that my right leg didn't touch the ground for three months, literally wasn't able to put my right leg down on the ground. So when you want to talk about loss of fitness and, and muscle mass, a broken bone, those two situations, dramatically different. So I think we explain what we're talking about. I mean, it's the, as you said, spinal or or head trauma. It's major broken bones. I think we can also talk a bit about neuromuscular loss of function. And obviously, you know, another one that uh, some athletes unfortunately had to deal with is loss of limb. Sure. So are there any others that we can think of that we need to talk about? Well, let's go back to potential loss of limb for a second. So Taylor Finney, everybody knows Taylor Finney and his horrific crash at Nationals, went under the guardrail, basically broke his patella, broke his femur. This was a devastating injury. And when he first came to see me after surgery, he was didn't really know where he was in, in his recovery process. And he wanted to be back immediately. He was, you know, highly paid athlete racing professionally for BMC at the time. And I finally had to take him and his mother aside and I said, Taylor, here's how things went down for you. Their first job is to save your life. It was at risk. Their second job was to save your limb so that you've got something to put in a pant leg. 
The third job was to make that limb functional. And lastly, our job is to make that an athletic limb again. And it wasn't until he really realized that he was potentially going to lose his life and potentially going to be an above-the-knee amputee that he grasped the seriousness of his injury. So it takes a while, and I think Julie can speak to this, how long does it take a person for it to absorb how badly they were hurt? Let's hear from Taylor Finney himself what his injury was like and how he came to terms with it. It was a double compound fracture of the lower left leg. So mainly it was the tibia that was broken in half. And they were both open compound fractures as well. So they were, the bone was coming out of the leg. But I actually made a conscious decision when I was laying on the side of the road not to look at my leg. I knew that it was something very serious because it was a pain that I had never experienced before. And I kind of peeked down and looked and I could just see that my foot was off to the side in a really weird angle. And I just, I mean, nobody likes looking at broken limbs, right? But I just made this decision. I said, I'm not going to look at this because if I look at it, I'm going to think about it for the rest of my life. And I just kept looking up at the sky and I just waited for the ambulance to come. But basically it was open right in the middle of the tibia with the tibia sticking out. And then it was also open at the patella and I severed my patellar tendon and actually took about a centimeter off of the bottom of the patella. And the impact was against a guardrail. I was going way too fast. I was going about 50 miles an hour and I stopped to zero on the metal guardrail with my left lower left leg, took everything but could have been my back, you know, could have been my neck, could have been anything else. And so I was really lucky, actually, to take it on this kind of, I sort of think of my leg as this spring that saved me that day and took the whole impact. And, you know, I can run now a little bit and go to the gym. I can ride my bike as long as I want to. And so I feel very lucky, for sure, considering. I guess a lot of athletes are pretty stubborn, right? So I honestly didn't think really for a second that I was not going to be able to use my leg again. It's more later that I was actually thinking about what the doctors and what Andy, what they were saying to me. But in that, in the moment I was, and in the days afterwards, I was fairly certain that I was kind of going to be fine, you know, very naively. It wasn't uh, based on any science. It was <laughs> just like, what do you mean? Of course, I'm going to ride my bike again. And of course, I'm going to race again, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> yeah, I, it's more something that I think about now. Um, and I'm very grateful to modern medicine to be able to look down now and see my leg that it's straight again and, and that I can use it. So why don't we jump over there and talk about the acute phase. So somebody has just been injured, be it a crash or whatever it happens to be. Let's talk about both the physical and the mental side of this, of what should you be doing, what shouldn't you be doing right after this happens to hopefully ensure that you have the recovery that you want, the sort of recovery that Taylor Finney had. And what is the the mental impact? How, How do people process this? mentally when they realize what they've just gone through. Well, I think Julie can speak to this, but I believe it's what in, it's what's inside them. 
there's people that might be a great athlete. They got a huge motor and just not mentally prepared to be injured. And it takes mental, mental toughness, but it takes a while for each individual to find that toughness too. Really? I don't know that anyone's ever prepared for a devastating or catastrophic injury for sure. There's just, you know, I don't think many of us would race or do what we do if we had to constantly think about that. Fortunately, a lot of the same characteristics that an athlete needs to be successful also come into play in their recovery process. So the same sort of tenacity, the thinking outside of the box, the utilizing a team, the perseverance, the commitment, all of those characteristics are essential in any kind of recovery. The one thing that also is required that isn't necessarily spoken about too often is when somebody is starting their career, their athletic career, there's no guarantee where it's going to go, right? You just have this belief. Maybe you have some data. You have belief of others around you telling you, you know, all systems go. You should keep pursuing this. You have a good chance of success. And so you have that encouragement. You keep going. But there's an enormous amount of ambiguity there that you have to be able to tolerate as an athlete, especially if you're an athlete that doesn't experience success right away. If you're recovering from a catastrophic injury, you have to have the same kind of ability to tolerate an enormous amount of ambiguity because there will be setbacks, there will be false starts, maybe not always, but often. And those can be so hard to stomach and it just requires somebody has that same ability to keep pushing forward while tolerating the unknown. So during that unknown, I tried to give them structure. So they're an athlete, they've had this training program, they've got these goals and that was their job. Some of them are in school, some of them are, have other, other real jobs, but training was their job with a goal of, of an A race or a B race or, or all of the above. I tried to make overcoming the injury their new job and give them structure in that recovery process that mimicked the training program because it really is a training right, program. Exactly. And my belief is that in recovery, you want the body and the tissues to heal doing the activities that they ultimately want to do. So if you're a runner with a broken tibia, we'd get them into the gravity-reducing treadmills as quickly as we possibly could. The great thing about cyclists is that the bike is never full weight-bearing. So we can really get them back on the bike. As soon as they have 95 degrees of range of motion of the knee, we get them back on the bike or a collarbone. So we actually put the thing they love to do as part of their recovery structure, right? And I think, so again, about tissue healing, doing what we want it to do. We want the severed patella tendon to heal while cycling. So those cellular structures are actually designed to do, reheal and, and redesign themselves to do what we want them to do. So that's a big, making, giving them a post-injury structure that simulates their training program. Really crucial. Yeah. Bringing this back to the acute phase of the injury, I almost think in the immediate, the days after the injury occurs, at least in my experience, and and because I'm so egocentric, I just apply this to everybody around me. There's a hope, right? Initially after the injury, maybe, maybe it's the endorphins flowing through my body, or maybe it's just not knowing what is going to come. It feels like, hey, this isn't a big deal. I can work through this. A month from now, I'm going to be back and, and out there. And there is definitely a change where you give that a couple weeks, you start getting into the process. And I think that that's maybe where the despair comes because you're not healing as fast or 
that doctor's appointment that was supposed to fix you, that's not for another month. Uh, we all have these things because at this point, you're now a patient. You're almost not even an athlete anymore. But immediately after that injury, you still feel like an athlete. You still feel like there's there's amazing hope there. I think there's a mourning process and there's levels of mourning. So at one point I told Taylor that he needed to mourn who he used to be and celebrate who he has become. And I think that can be in the short term after an acute injury. That's I don't know how Julie feels about this, but you got to mourn the fitness that you just had and lost in that criterium crash. You got to celebrate where you are and look forward to the future. And that's, I always tried to keep them moving in that, in that positive direction. So I may have been off. Yeah. No, no, you're spot on. I'll try not to get too philosophical here, but essentially if you're considering an athlete in their, you know, late teens, early twenties, and most people at that age are trying hard to carve out their own identity, a sense of self. And so if athletics is what you've been, is the medium through which you've been doing that, then you start to feel that you are this person, you are, you are that athlete. So in the immediate wake of an injury, all of that is tossed up, you know, it's a, it's tossed salad, it's all over the place. And so your sense of self, your identity is completely in question. And it can be very scary to somebody to now have to grapple with, well, who am I? And so Rob, to your point, um, I just actually said this to an athlete yesterday who I work with, who's, uh, has a long-term type of injury situation, just because you are not able to go to the training camp or do this or race or be on the schedule that you thought you would be on doesn't mean that you're not an athlete anymore. And that comes back to the question of identity, which I'm, which I was speaking about earlier. You're still an athlete. You're just in a different phase of what it is to be an athlete. When we were talking with Dr. Seiler, he brought up the parallels between injuries and overtraining. One of the biggest of which is the loss of a sense of self. The best conversation I've had on that topic was with a a former national team cross-country coach here in Norway uh, named Arald Jorgensen, and he lives here in, where I live in Kristiansand. He's, he's coached Olympic medalists, and he's also worked a lot with coming back from overtraining syndrome, which is not a specific injury, but it is a very debilitating status to be in and very difficult to come back from. And one of his main messages was is that the athlete that has been so fit and so such a high performer, their calibration of themselves is as this unique, highly trained specimen. And then they're confronted with a reality that is almost their brain can't quite digest, which is you're not that athlete right now because of a major injury or because of overtraining. You are not that. And so you you have to quit comparing yourself with that previous version of you. And instead, the road to recovery involves comparing yourself with yesterday's version of you and giving yourself a little pat on the back when you make a nice with small progress because that will be the pathway back. But it can be overwhelming to compare yourself with you when you were at your top after three months of not being able to train. So it's very much just recalibrating. And then you can get back. You can get back. But if you always, if you start, it'll just feel like an impossible mission if you compare yourself with the best version of your yourself when you're, you know, kind of at the bottom again. Uh, my daughter has faced that too, you know, just after multiple injuries and COVID and everything. She said, man, I finally just had to realize I'm not going to be racing this season and I got to start from scratch, you know. 
And and once she figured that out, and once she came to grips with that, she was more relaxed and was able to just get on with business. And it got better. Tis the season for spring knee. As March sunshine and early spring weather inspires us to ramp up our riding mileage, our knees don't always keep up. If you've got knee pain, we have the solution for you. Fast Talk Lab members can follow our new knee health pathway, featuring our new director of sports medicine, Dr. Andy Pruitt. See the introduction to the knee health pathway at fasttalklabs.com. The one study that I, I found related to this, leading up to this episode, was actually called Biopsychosocial Experiences of Elite Athletes Retiring from Sport for Career-Ending Injuries. So it was basically a, a review of any studies that, that looked at the experience in athletes, and it said exactly what you're saying, that there were, there were three challenges these athletes faced. One was this loss of self. Second one was lack of support. And the third one was mental health decline. And they made a big point that having social support is really important, and that's often challenging for athletes because their whole social network sometimes is other athletes in their sport. And because they can't participate, they lose that. And the recommendation of this study was build a social network outside of your sport. Yeah, um, I think that's really important and also very challenging because usually yeah. those are the people that you are drawn to, who you want to be around, you share similar values. You know, it's a second family to so many people or an extended family. And the time commitment to your sport, mm-hmm. right? There's, how do you have two separate groups? Of, right. Yeah, your non-athletic social group and your athletic social group that I, I would find that it would be hard. Yeah. I, I mean, I had medical and athletic, but most of my medical colleagues were also athletes. Yeah. So it's, it come almost, on, Andy, we all, we all cross sides on this one. here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah I mean, it was, it, it's hard. I'm 73 years old and I still, I'm still an athlete. So, I mean, it's, it's part of who I am. And I guess along the way I could have lost that a couple of times, but the mental drive to be who we want to be. I think it depends on the severity of the injury you're talking about. And, you know, obviously if somebody is now prohibited from doing their sport, then it would be essential to find other connections and, you know, other points of contact that you enjoy some way, somehow. One of the strategies I used was find them an alternative sport, whether it was um, temporary or permanent finding them another avenue for that competitiveness and that athleticism that worked really well. Right. You know? So before we move to talking about the long-term impacts, I actually just want to ask one kind of practical question to you, Andy, which is let's talk about that scenario where say you're, you're part of a group, you're out for a big group ride, you're on a big descent. One of your friends crashes hard and you realize this is a, a bad injury. They've broken something, something has happened, they've injured their spine. What are the things that you can do to help that person to make sure that at that moment you're doing the right things? And I think particular, you know, Chris Case was leading a, a tour over in Europe and Ben Delaney had that really bad crash and, and went down a hill. And Chris has told the story of trying to deal with this and figure out, oh, oh my God, he's hurt. What do we do? And, and I, I won't give names, but there was one person who was like, Oh my God, save the bike and ran down the hill to get the bike. So what, what are suggestions? What should people do when in that scenario? Well, on, on that same note, before I get serious, what's the first question the person asked who crashed? 
Is, is my, my bike okay? Bike okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting is I saw in the news last night where they're training grade schoolers in first aid because of all the active shooter incidents and mass shootings. They're training first aid at a, a very basic level at very young children. And some of the parents are saying, oh, they shouldn't have to be. But I think everybody should know basic first aid. What if you're by yourself with a big laceration, yeah. Yeah. you know, or a broken bone? You, some basic splinting, some basic tourniquet. So if you're an athlete, you better, I think, have basic first aid training. And that includes you, Trev. <laughs> yep. I'll agree with that. And and maybe, Andy, because both you and I come out of the medical world, it seems so obvious. But I'll also say that this is approachable for anyone, not just a medical professional, to have basic first aid and CPR. It's really very simple. And in all honesty, the courses are tailored away from the medical person so that the lay person gets a lot of value out of it. It's not too much of a time commitment. They're not expensive. There's really no reason not to do it, to tell you the truth. And and this is something where I think it's important that we all support the riders around us or the runners around us, the skiers around us, because you are your brother's keeper, right? And uh, I want people, uh, I want to be able to rely on them if anything happens to me. And then I also want them to rely on me in the opposite case. And I think that this is a great time to plug. Communication is sometimes the only thing that you can do. And, and oftentimes places that we're riding, there is not cell phone service. Uh, and so 95% of the time, unless I know I'm going for an hour just around my house, I carry a satellite communicator with me. They're relatively inexpensive. They're relatively small. It doesn't get in the way. And the only time I've ever really had to use it was not for myself, but for, for an incident that I came across uh, that I shared previously. Um, somebody had a cardiac arrest in front of me. And again, you are your brother's keeper. It, it's like carrying that avalanche transceiver for people that do backcountry skiing. In some regard, that's for saving your life, but it's also very important to save the lives of the people around you. And, uh, Sometimes the absolute best thing you can do is just is send for help and having the ability to do that is hugely important. Yeah. And the way I look at these things, and this is part of what why I was asking the question is if you're not fully trained, like I agree completely, get the, the first aid, but sometimes you can do more harm than good. Sometimes you just have to recognize the situations where you go, there's not much I can do here. And if I try to do something, I might be doing more harm. And, and really my job is get the experts here as quickly as we can. Well, there's a state law that protects goodwill bystanders that help people. So you're not going to get in trouble by trying to help someone and end up making it, mm -hmm. making it worse, right? But making people comfortable is pretty key. Mm -hmm. Making people comfortable is pretty key. Uh, but you'll learn how to assess a head or spinal cord injury in your basic first aid and to know whether or not to roll them over or not. But airway is key, right? So even if they've got a spinal cord injury and they're on their face, face down or vomiting, there's no airway. There's no good into that. And Julia, this is my opinion, but it's really interesting to hear what you think. I think sometimes the best thing you can be doing is holding somebody's hand and talking with them because mm -hmm. they are going through a whole bunch. They're, they're in pain. They're mentally trying to process this. And sometimes that's where they need the most help. Right, right. Absolutely. In those situations, really, I think everyone's humanness would hopefully show through and you do what you can just to comfort, reassure, try to be encouraging. There's not much difference between an automobile accident and a bike crash. The physiology of the injuries are, are similar, right? But the attitude of that person, uh, the athlete has a more positive go-get-em attitude than maybe 
I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but somebody in a car that's not, a, not maybe not athletic, not as strong personally. I, I came across a, a overturned Jeep one winter night. Tires were still still spinning, so I jumped out of my car, and and there was a guy underneath the Jeep uh, with a right arterial bleed. And it, I was coming home from skiing, and it was before I-70 was complete. And I actually got in the Jeep with him, put pressure on his arterial bleed, and lay down beside him to keep him warm while my brother called 911. And so 911 finally arrived, and as soon as you know I could let go of this guy's arterial bleed and get out of the puddle, uh, let the trained first aiders who had real first aid equipment take over. So I did what I needed to do to keep him warm, stop the bleeding, and, and keep him comfortable. Just to pivot a little bit back towards injuries versus mm-hmm. situations where people are dying. Yep. I do think, though, one of the best things about a really good sports medicine doc is the ability to not just address what's going on physically, but also provide a sense of hope and options for that patient. So there's a real art there of helping somebody with your medical skills, but also being able to help them feel hopeful about what they can do in the short term and what things might look like down the road. There are practitioners with great bedside skills uh, and great medical skills. And there are those with great medical skills who have terrible human relation Mm -hmm. skills. So sorting through your medical care, it does take a team sometimes. And I know surgeons who have really personable athletic trainer assistants or PA assistants that provide the personality, provide that warmth and connection that maybe the technical surgeon can't either he can't have doesn't have the personality or just doesn't have the time to provide those things so finding that building that team around around the injured athlete is i think it's crucial yeah and at the same time you know we all probably know athletes who have had catastrophic injuries and the surgeon says you're never going to run again you're never going to bike again but it really you know sparks a fire under that yes. athlete's butt and they're like i'm going to prove you wrong and in my experience i can't think of one where they haven't. Every single person yeah. I can think of, they really have been able to prove that that physician wrong. This is actually one of the reasons I personally, when I get injuries like that, I gravitate towards seeing a sports mm. specialized doctor because they're always about how do we get you back mm-hmm. on the bike or, or get you back to sport. You know, I had the experience. I had a back problem since I was 15 and I was still working with the, the pediatrician that my, my mother had found when I was a kid. And so I went and saw him and they did the x-rays and came back and said, you, you've got a back problem. And his, he just kind of nonchalantly said, yeah, you'll never do sports again, but you're a smart guy. So you have other things to do. It's, don't worry about it. I'm so they're going, what? <laughs> Wait, mm-hmm. what did you just say? And, and, and that had a huge mental impact on me. And sometimes doctors can say things like that very quickly and not realize, oh, that's going to have an impact on the person. So... You know, that's personally, I've gravitated towards sports doctors. They're like, you got an injury, this is going to be an issue, but let's figure out how to get you functional again. Yeah, more than once I was told you'll never do something and watch me, Mm -hmm. right? So I would, I've never told an athlete, never, ever, ever told an athlete or a patient of any kind, they would never do what they wanted to do again. Never. I mean, the reality is there are situations where people do lose functioning. You know, people Mm -hmm. lose limbs, people lose just sensations, people lose a sense of balance. And in my work, it's always challenging because I think for every person, it brings up our sense of mortality. And that's always something that's hard to sit with. But as challenging as that work 
can be. It also is some of the most rich work that I've done and have helped people through. I mean, these are devastating types of injuries and being able to sit with somebody for as long as it takes while they're going through cycles of grief, you know, which just for the the record, you know, I'll, I'll list them, but just the experience of shock, I would say more shock and awe and denial, you know, stages of bargaining, anger, sadness and depression, and then maybe glimpses of acceptance and resilience and hope, but then all the way back to, you know, circulating all through all those stages all over again, as long as it takes. And it's on my side of things hard, but not nearly as hard as it is for the person going through it. And I think in these more serious cases where there has been a loss of a limb or there's they can't get back to their sport as they once did, it's just crucial to be able to help that person find joy in either some aspect of sport and activity or joy and connection in other parts of their life. It's a reality, you know, it's out there, it happens. It's always sad, you know, but there's always options for a traumatic growth response where there's been trauma. You mentioned all the stages and there's books out there, you know, the seven stages of grief or when somebody dies or divorce or are, do you see them happen in a, in a relatively normal hierarchy of, of stages? The shock and awe and denial, yes, are usually, you know, they're always yep. the first. And then the others, in my experience, they kind of experience different stages, but you can experience and express all three or four or five within an hour. You know, it kind of depends on the person. It depends on where they are in their recovery. It depends if something they experienced triggers them and sets them back into a state of anger. And some people move through in a pretty natural way, but what's right for one person isn't right for the other. So it can take any duration of time. But there are situations where some people tend to get stuck like in an angry phase, mm -hmm. and then they wind up isolating themselves even more. And that's not good because then they're just, you know, continuing this process of withdrawal from their community. And so being able to guide them through in those situations is obviously important mm -hmm. for their well-being. I can just see some listener hanging on that, right? Mm -hmm. Who's maybe stuck in a vortex of yeah. despair. Yeah. And being angry, being angry that something happened is often so much easier than feeling sad and yeah. really doing the deep grief work around, I'm never going to be able to write with my right hand again or hold a handlebar. Let's hear how Taylor Finney dealt with the grief. His approach was actually pretty unique and in my opinion, very healthy. I was 24 years old. I had been racing bicycles for seven years pretty seriously. I went to the Olympics for the first time when I was had just turned 18 and I never really had a break from being a professional athlete since I was a, a senior in high school. So throughout this recovery period, I definitely felt like I was on a track before the injury to go in a direction that was where I wanted to go. You know, I was winning races. I was very fit. I was going to go do my first Tour de France, hopefully that year. And then the crash happened and all of a sudden I was on this road to recovery, but I accepted it pretty early on. I think I, I've always been good at accepting things that are right in front of my face <laughs> that I have no control over. And this whole period seemed like this 
uh, a little bit of a break from a very serious world that I had been in for my whole adult life. And also the rehab process was very simple and the routine of just doing my rehab every day. And then, of course, it's not like sunshine and rainbows, right? Every single day. But I, I felt like I was actually quite relieved to have a moment, well, a lot of, a long moment to kind of wind down a little bit. And then that whole process led me to a whole creative side of, of my brain, which is now what, what I do and what I, what I follow. So in retrospect, I'm very grateful that I had this kind of switch and change with the crash. So you didn't really have any really dark moments of, of what has this done to me? Any, any of the anger that some people experience? I would definitely say the first couple of days were really intense. Uh, it was kind of like when they were putting my leg back together. There were some periods of time between surgeries, also really long surgeries. And the pain medication was messing with my head and my emotional state. But you're so medicated that it's kind of very blurry those first couple of days. The worst moment for me was I woke up from a nap the day afterwards and I was supposed to go get an MRI on the leg. They still hadn't put the leg back together yet, but they had put this external fixator on, which basically they drilled into my femur and they drilled into my ankle. And then they had a, a rod on the outside that was just holding everything straight. So I went into this MRI straight from the nap. And so I didn't have any pain medication. And I remember being in the MRI, just like counting down seconds as if that was going to help the MRI go by faster. And my muscles in my quads started spasming. And just like it was, it, it got real, real dark in that moment because I was in a lot of pain and really kind of confused. But once it was just a case of rehabbing, I felt pretty comfortable in that environment because I felt like, okay, well, I'm losing a lot of muscle mass, but I'm just going to have to do the work to bring it back. So I wasn't grieving in that kind of way. So something, Andy, that I, I really like that you've said a few times, and so right now we're talking about that. Now you're looking at potentially years to, to fully recover is you often will tell these athletes, you're no longer now a world tour athlete. You're a back patient hmm. or you're a, whatever the injury is. You're now this patient. And it's not to beat them up and go, you're not a cyclist anymore. You're not a runner. You're not a triathlete. It's just to take advantage of the fact that, and I'm not talking just high level athletes, but most athletes are very good about saying, I've got a plan. I'm going to do my work. And what you're telling them is take that mentality, take that approach and apply it to being a patient. Because my experience is whether somebody recovers really well or really poorly often comes down to you're going to be given a lot of work to do. You're going to be working with PTs. You can be working with various experts and you got to go do that work. So you need to apply what you've done as an athlete to being a patient. And I remember saying that to you. <laughs> Many times. And then walking away, muttering all sorts of... At this moment, you're a back patient. Yes. Doesn't mean you're not going to be a cyclist again, but at this moment, your job 
is to embrace being a back patient and all that that encounters, all that encompasses of being a back patient, the rehab, the the mental part, all the all the different layers to that, and then that's how you get back to being the cyclist again. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, physical therapy is a big piece of this. In today's society, sadly, access to physical therapy via insurance is somewhat limited. I've got a young, very avid skier who had just gone through ACL reconstruction, and she needs an ankle reconstructed that's going to be down in the fall, done in the fall sometimes. She says, I only get 20 PT visits a year. How do I do this, right? How do I, which is most important? Should I spend them all on the knee or should I save some for the ankle? So she said, okay, I'm going to give 10 to each. So I'm trying to get her to think about how do we substitute your formal PT at home or, or at the gym? We, we've got to find her a way to supplement. So be thinking that I'm going to PT, that's your job? No. Your job is doing that PT on your own every day and making it part of your schedule. And you won't fall behind that way. If you, if you wait to go to PT to get better, it's not going to happen. The, the responsibility is really on the athlete and the athlete's close community to help them. Because some people don't have access to formal PT at all. Right, right. And actually, that that's a nice lead into one of the things that we had talked about as we were planning for this episode as far as like, how can friends be helpful? Mm. How can families be helpful? Yep. And I hear so many times um, an injured athlete is really sick and tired of like, someone just only asking about their injury or mm -hmm. nervously skirting around the awkwardness of the situation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, people I think are well-meaning. They just are, on, it's like I said earlier, any major injury brings up everybody's sense of immortality and vulnerability, our fragility. And so we all want to avoid it. And so people, even though they're well-intended, say some insensitive things at times. And so I think that some one of the best ways family and friends can be helpful is simply to just ask, how can I help you? How, what, and when can I help you? What would it look like for me to be of best service to you? Do you need help getting to PT? Do you need help with me helping you with the PT exercises you're now doing at home? Do you need help organizing your medical bills? Do you need help with just having a healthy dinner? at the table because you are not mobile. Going back to that study that I mentioned, they talked about one of the big issues is people start to feel socially isolated. Absolutely. I would think even if it's well-intentioned, if the people around you are kind of being avoidant and skirting around the issue, that's going to feel like even being further socially isolated. Like there, there's something about you now that's making them avoid you. So I think, and I've had this experience myself, I would rather people just come and be pretty blunt and say, hey, what's going on? How can I help you? And talk mm -hmm. about it. And at least you feel connected with people. Mm -hmm. But as the injured athlete, you get pretty tired of that's all you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, there, you need to have some other conversations, some other movies, some other whatever to help time move along, right? That right. Aren't, aren't concentrated on their injury or their or their sport. Um, it's just community. I think we keep coming back to it. it it's pretty crucial. The, the single athlete who lives alone. I can remember my son when he broke his ankle in a bike race and, and he lived alone. And, and it was phew, encouraging people to go see him, to help him trim his toenails, to change his dressings, to do all those, you know. So the athlete that lives alone, that can be isolating for sure. Coach Neil Henderson has had the experience of a bad injury and he discovered the importance of having support. 
I mean, I've worked with a few athletes that have been in this in this boat. I myself uh, had a had a period of time where I had to completely stop doing you know the sport that I really was committed to that I loved because I you know just had injuries that were mounting to the point where I could not function as a regular you know person in dealing with those injuries. So number one, there is an aspect of of changing priority, especially with with some of those major ones that training no longer becomes the thing to be better day in and day out from a from an external kind of like an, an achievement point of view. And it's rearranging your mental energy, your physical energy in towards that healing process and getting well. And in some cases, that is time completely off of not doing that sport or activity. And that is often the hardest. And how do you manage that psychological letdown, there's there's often depression and other things that are associated with that changing, you know, what often has been a driving force in, in a lot of athletes' lives, especially when we talk about that, you know, very driven high-end athlete, elite athlete, it can be catastrophic from a psychological point of view. And so being able to reframe and reference things to get to a normal living and state in that be in that way so that the healing can occur. Those things have to work together and so support structures family co-workers friends all of those are really important folks to be involving in that process to surround somebody in a good way to work through that time period where they may not be able to do their sport in any way and not define everything based on that too what they can't do it's what can you do right now what is important what are the focus there's certain active recovery and things like that that may be part of that rehab etc but just reframing some of the things that make them a great you know make people great athletes and being able to stay committed and, and you know commit to something and follow through it's just changing one of those things going to appointments etc rehab focusing on nutrition, sleep, quality, all of those things that are still also useful for healing. I think, you know, on team sports, it's also helpful. Some athletes want to be around, you know, they want to be on the sidelines and they want to be helping or they want to help the coach or do other things like that. And some people don't. In endurance sports, it's a little trickier. I guess if you're a triathlete, you can choose to go to the pool and help you know, lead the group swims. You can be in a follow car for cyclists and be a support role in that way. It's one way to stay connected. It just depends on that person and if they're open to that. That's the great thing about triathlon. They got three choices, Yeah. right? And so it's rare that their injury takes them out of all three of right. them. It's how triathlon was born. A bunch of injured runners started riding bikes and swimming. <laughs> oh, hell, let's make this a competition, right? <laughs> so that, back to what I said maybe half hour ago was finding them an alternative outlet for their athletic endeavor, even if it's temporary. A lot of injured runners have become high-quality cyclists. Yes. yes, and a lot of injured soccer players have become high-quality cyclists. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I hate to say it, but this is something I bring up. Cycling is kind of the old person's sport because there's so many sports that you you can do really well in your 20s and even into your 30s, but you start particularly running. You Just so much impact. Eventually, you start getting more injuries, and you see people in their 40s start saying, I'm going to shift to cycling because it doesn't have the impact. It doesn't have the damaging effects. It's something I can do the rest of my life. Well, I mean, it, it, it is the number one rehab tool for many injuries, ankle, mm -hmm. knee, back, hip. I mean, it is the number one place where we get people moving again. The number one injured body part from cycling is the knee. Mm -hmm. What is the number one rehab tool used for recovering from a knee injury? It's the bike. So it's a pretty safe place to be post-injury pretty quickly. Yep. 
I do want to add, though, even though I think it's it's always important to bring someone back to emotion and exercise, and obviously for reasons that we know, I worry about some people that kind of exclusively rely on their physical outlet as a source of identity mm-hmm. and their attachment to their physical selves as like the one and only thing that brings them happiness. Things are always changing. You know, we age, our bodies change, um, road conditions change, <laughs> I know, except for us, we don't age. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but it's just true. Things are always changing and none of us really want to accept that. And and I don't think most of us are too good at accepting that. And so I don't know Taylor, for example, um, personally, but it was obvious that after his injury, he took a big interest in the arts. And I think it's very healthy to always encourage somebody to explore other avenues that are that can feel expansive in ways that your athletic life has also felt expansive. It's going to feel different, but it's nevertheless expansive. And if you have more of an expansive view on things versus a rigid, tight connection to this is the only thing that brings me happiness, then overall, you're affording yourself more options for well-being in life. You know, Taylor's an interesting guy. I've known him since really the day he was born, and he had a really well-rounded life. I mean, he's parents were well-rounded. His mother's an artist. So he was interested in art. Just So his injury and retirement ultimately gave him the opportunity. But he's not that he's not riding. He's doing really adventure bikepacking all over Europe. He still uses the bike as an extension of himself. He's still on, in lots of different social medias with his bike. But his art is, is really taken off. So he, but he had that avenue. So if you're a well-rounded person, you're going to have mm-hmm. other opportunities, right? So it's that singular focused athlete that really is going to need your help right. to find it. Right. And sometimes people find those other outlets involuntarily, so to speak, by default. And some people already have those sort of in the background of their lives. Nevertheless, I think we're shortchanging ourselves as humans if we only consider that this one thing is yeah. only the thing. Yep. Taylor did a good job finding an outlet while he was injured. He discovered art. Let's hear about it. I discovered art and painting in particular really as a form of therapy, as a form of self-expression. I think I've always been a very introspective person. I've developed an extroverted personality, but I've always been an introvert and somebody who likes to think about things for quite a long time and uh, approach things from different angles and try to make sense of things in a kind of a non-linear way. And painting presented itself to me as this this huge world that I could explore that was without any rules really or maybe there are rules but there wasn't a there was no result there wasn't a metric that was determining whether I was doing it successfully or not that has changed now that it's sort of become my one of my professions but at least starting out, I came from this world where you do this certain amount of watts for X amount of time and you get this result in a race. And if you don't hit the power, you don't hit the speed, then you're not going to get the result. And painting, I just remember when I first started painting, thinking, who cares if anybody likes this as long as, as long as I like it? And I don't even have to like it, but I can put things on here that are deeply personal to me and then I can paint over them and no one is ever going to see them, but I know that they're there. And there was something very, 
therapeutic and liberating about that whole process. I'm not sure if the article that you were referencing earlier mentioned any of this, but I also have experienced where people's faith can really be helpful to them during rough injury experiences. You know, whether it's a sense of spirituality or a strong sense of devotion to a specific religion, I think that sense of finding a purpose in something bigger and beyond ourselves as individuals can be helpful to people during really catastrophic injuries. Chloe is very religious and very spiritual. It's been a big part for her if you've ever, if you watched Chloe Digert and if you follow her. But that's part of the community. That's where, that's where she finds non-cycling community, right? Yeah. So I do think it's important. I do. So I want to shift a little bit because we got an email that motivated this episode. And so this is getting more into the medical side of it, but I want to throw the question that we got in the email to you, Andy. And I know every injury is different, so it's going to be a very hard question to answer, but maybe we can talk about a few specific cases. But this is, it was a gentleman named Thorben who's from Toronto who sent this email and, and he wrote, I broke my femur in four places during a crash in July and have been undergoing physio for a couple of months now. I can't really find anything about how to come back from traumatic injury. We all know that cyclists like Barry, Woods, Froome, et cetera, came back from broken femurs. We also know Baloki never did. Be great to learn more about how they did it. One thing I came to understand is that no femur fracture is the same and that recovery is highly individual. So what would your response to this be? Well, it's not just femur fractures that are highly individual. They all are, right? Right. So it was the ability, the kind of fracture. Was it multi-pieced? Was it a single piece of hardware that held it together and and the anatomy realignment was normal? That outcome's going to be good. If the femur was shattered and it took multiple pieces of hardware and the ending alignment was less than perfect, then they're going to have a a lesser outcome. So it's, wow, that's, I appreciate the fact that he's looking for something to, to grab onto but I would, I would, my encouragement would be uh, make sure that he gets a good medical bike fit because his alignment most likely has changed, and that's going to prohibit his comeback. How much muscle damage was there? Chloe Digert transected her entire quadricep, so mm-hmm. she calls it her baby leg, right? So is it strong? It is really strong. It, does it look like her other leg? No, it doesn't. But she's starting the women's Vuelta today. So comeback is possible after two years. So your listener who wrote in, they've got to keep going. They've got to keep going, but they've got to check the boxes. Is my alignment different? Do I need a medical bike fit? Is my unilateral strengthening appropriate? Are they working the one leg, not the two legs? Are they? So there's so many individual aspects of it. Are they getting the right kind of individualized physical therapy guides, right? So for him... Recovering is his job, and he needs to make it his job. Can he get back to where he was before? Some of that's age-dependent, right? So if you get hurt in your 40s and it takes you two years to get back, you may not get back to the same level you were before. Chloe Digert was 23. Trust me, she's going to get back to where she, you know, where she was before. So there's lots of, lots of physiological factors that are going to play into how your guy recovers versus Froomey. So look at Froome. He's never been back to the same level. He's racing world tour. Yeah. But is he winning? No, he's hanging on for dear life. Yeah. So femoral fractures are, they're an individual tough, tough, tough thing. No doubt. And when you're talking about at that high a level, like somebody like Froome, 
he might have gotten back to 95% of his previous right. level. But they, they've always said the difference between the winner of the tour and the, the Lantern Rouge is about 5%. Exactly. Another aspect of this is dealing with the pain of the injury. So let's hear from neuroscientist Scott Frey, who studies pain. I underwent a knee surgery in 2017 after running competitively and doing triathlons for a long time, a number of decades, and uh, had to choice to make of, of, you know, trying to come back and be able to run again, which was very near and dear to my heart, or really letting that go. And I made the decision that from then on, I wouldn't be a runner anymore in any capacity. It's a hard thing for an athlete to have to realize that they've reached the point where they've got to make a major change in something that has been important for structuring their whole lives. And uh, of course, as an amateur, it wasn't nearly as uh, big a thing for me as it would be for somebody who's earning their living doing their particular activity. You can't probably uh, manage too much the, the pain of coming back and working through all that rehabilitation and physical therapy. That's going to hurt. But you can start to try and look at that as a sign that you're making progress, that you're moving in the direction that you want to go. You don't have a lot of control about the sensations that you're going to be having, but you do have some control over how you frame them and how you choose to interpret what they mean. It's really humbling, right? We have the luxury of being healthy and engaging in uh, pain that we choose to inflict upon ourselves, essentially. But anyone with any kind of medical condition with which pain is associated is in a very different situation. It is not a choice. And unfortunately, in the medical side of things, our ability to manage pain is not great, right? We have an opioid crisis in this country because we essentially went down that direction of treating pain way too much and way too liberally with very little caution. In fact, there are consequences to people's lives for undergoing pain treatments. We don't have a magic bullet for pain right now that has no consequences, that isn't going to make you feel diminished in the rest of your life, right? So working on the psychological side of things is an important component of this, how you frame that experience of pain. And again, I'm a neuroscientist. I go back to what is the underlying physiology, and these behaviors that we engage in are all coming from brain physiology. But the really cool thing about your brain is the behaviors you choose to engage in. How you choose to think about something is also changing that physiology. For both beginners and veterans, polarized training is the best way to get and stay fast year after year. And this is the perfect time of year to be thinking about how polarized training can help you. In our new guide featuring Dr. Steven Seiler, explore fascinating and helpful topics like how polarized training is different from sweet spot, how to bust out of performance plateaus, how to polarize all season, how to build durability, and how to time your high-intensity work. With the complete guide from Fast Talk Labs, you'll have everything you need to polarize your training like a pro and unlock your elite. Learn more at fasttalklabs.com. I think something that's important in this is as an athlete going through recovery to never settle, but I'm going to use that in the context of your medical providers. Andy is speaking as somebody who is extremely knowledgeable, especially in the world of cycling from both an education and a personal experience standpoint. And I know that not everybody has access to the absolute best medical provider for them, but most people live in a community that has more than one doctor, more than one physical therapist, more than one sports psychologist. And it is imperative that people 
if this doesn't seem like the right person for you, find somebody else. Because that next person might hold the key. That next person might share your experience. That next person might have the same enthusiasm that you do. And I've certainly seen doctors that have looked at me and said, you're an athlete. This isn't a big deal. Maybe you can't ride your bike as much as you used to and move on. And, and Trevor, you could have kind of brought this up before. But I think even within, that was a sports med doctor that had said that to me. You know, that was a sports med doc that didn't have the passion for cycling that I had. So I do believe that the care that you get and reaching out and, and getting that care sooner rather than later is, is probably beneficial as well. These things don't feel like much, but I think in the end, the result is hugely different. Starting therapy a month sooner, whether that's a mental therapy or a physical therapy, can have a drastically different outcome, just like having that therapist or that doctor who does things just a little bit different. That can be drastically different three, six, 12 months down the line. I agree. And there's nothing worse than a patient slash athlete showing up on my table and I'm the 15th guy he's seen, right? He's, he's, yeah. he's doctor shopping, looking for someone to tell him what he wants to hear. That's not what Rob's talking about. Rob's talking about looking for adding to their medical team. Even sometimes it's a partner in the same practice might be a better fit for you, right? So you inherited this doc in the ER and they're caring for you and you're just not right, getting that right feel and you hear a reputation of one of their partners in the same group. Well, is that going to hurt somebody's feelings? Who the heck cares? Hurt their feelings. If you want to see somebody different, they should accept the fact that there's for some reason you're looking for something else and to move on. And that's okay, right? That is okay to move on. And, and But not once you get to the point where you're doctor shopping and if five guys tell you the same thing, it's probably true, right? It's okay. I just want to add from a patient's perspective to do that. It's not necessarily okay within a medical practice for you to do that. I personally experienced some difficulty with things like that. And also, I just think we should mention that depending on if you're in the United States or in Canada or somewhere in Europe or anywhere else in the world listening, your access to medical care obviously is so different. And the yeah. time that it takes to get in to see a physician takes substantially longer in many cases. But if you experience something inside of a particular practice, I can think of one here in Boulder, which is to try to move around inside that practice is awful. Mm -hmm. But most are like, okay, you want to see, you should see my partner. He's a really good guy. He might have something to add to this, or she's a really good girl. I mean, and she can have something to add to this. But if, if you're having trouble moving around inside of a particular practice, I'd get out of that practice. I think the challenge here is being able to identify who's a good therapist and who isn't. You know, I think in my own experience, as I said, I had, a, I developed a back problem at 15 and I saw a therapist for a decade who, you know, Andy, if I, I told you, her approach to, to back treatment, you just cringe. You know, it's completely against what the, the science says now. But at the time, I had no idea that she wasn't good. And I can understand a lot of athletes would, would struggle with that going, I don't know if I'm actually getting good therapy or not. And I think that's where a good coach or a good expert who has had a history of helping athletes return to sport is a good person to go to and say, you know, they might not be the expert. You know, so for example, with my back issue, you don't specifically treat back problems, but if I was looking for somebody to help me, I'd come to you, Andy, and say, who would you recommend I see? Right. I tried to be the, the hub in the wheel, right? Uh, and tried to know as many people in the community as I could, or even globally. I've sent people to surgeons in Belgium. I mean, I, so I tried to be that go-to 
come see me. If I don't, if I can't help you, I probably will know someone who can. And that's really important. Not not to hold on to a patient beyond your beyond your skill set. Hard to do, but so. Going back to the example of Chloe, I think this also gets back to the, the mental side. I remember you telling me that, you know, she had a pretty big scar on her leg and you talked to her about getting treatment to, to remove some of the scar. And she said, why would I do that? Scars are cool. <laughs> and while I'm not promoting a try to have as nasty a scar as you possibly can, it showed her mindset. Mm-hmm. She was being very positive about this and not woe is me and, and looking for the, the best in the whole situation. I think that probably helped a lot. Would both of you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I think scars are the tattoos of life. You know, I, have, I have plenty of scars. Yep. One from the same day that Taylor crashed actually at TT Nationals years ago. My wife and I, we keep threatening to have a contest to measure all of our scars and see who wins. Yeah. <laughs> This is a tangent, but I was on another podcast and apparently this host at the end of every episode asked the guest, what's your favorite tattoo that you have? And I don't actually have any tattoos. So I got hit with that question and just my response was, my tattoos are blood and scars because you (laughs) earned those. Yeah. I have a funny scar story. Uh, I broke my hip in um, Fruta, Colorado. I had an ungraceful dismount off my bike and oops, I broke my hip. And, um, the last thing I said to the surgeon, as I was on my way into surgery, before they gave me the gas or whatever to knock me out, I said, can you give me a lightning bolt scar? (laughs) And then I go under, I wake up, I see the surgeon for the first time. And I said, so did you give me the scar? (laughs) He turned white, his mouth dropped open. He was like, you were serious about that? I was like, yeah, of course I was serious about that. He's like, oh man, I just thought that was the drugs talking. No, all you have is a hockey stick. I've never been so disappointed in my life. <laughs> I hadn't even seen my leg yet, but to know I only had a hockey stick, oh, so lame. Rob, you do know that makes you a little bit more Canadian, right? <laughs> I guess it does. I guess it does. So Julie, when we're talking about this this recovery and it's a long-term recovery, are there any other things that you see mentally with, with these athletes when they're, they're struggling with the fact that they aren't fully functional, that they're yeah. looking at a long recovery? I would just like to normalize the experience of depression and despair, the sense of loss, um, feeling like you're a victim, whether you really were a victim in a scenario or you took yourself out from an accident on your own. It's all a normal process of what you're going through and it's your body's way of trying to protect yourself from just the sheer loss that you're experiencing. And it's okay to feel angry. It's it's okay to feel that sense of loss. It's natural, but it's also really important to have people around you who can help you feel empowered, who can give you different ideas, help you think outside the box and give you that boost of empowerment and encouragement when you need it. Positive attitude in the community. I've had lots of talks with mothers, especially, but parents, aside from the from the athlete. I remember taking Connie and Davis aside after after Taylor got hurt and said, look, guys, I know you're mad. I know you're, you guys have got to be so positive. You, you know, you've got to be so positive. So I was giving him some bad news and Connie said to me, you're not positive. I said, I'm just telling him the truth. You guys have to be the ones that are, you know, but a caregiver with a positive attitude goes a very long way. Yeah. On that same note, I think parents and Loved ones are in a unique role where when somebody's in, for lack of a better word, say the angry phase, and if that person is just lashing out and they are inconsolable and just 
a real pill for seemingly ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to give that person time. Obviously they need time, but I think it's also, at some points it's okay to say, look, as somebody who really cares about you, you need to try to come to grips with at least how you're expressing this because you're going to further alienate yourself. So for parents, for example, to try to put up some guardrails around their child's behavior if they're getting stuck in the wrath of of what they're going through. Yeah, Julie, I think that that's a great point, right? Because the athlete, they're in their own head, right? All that they care about is what's going on in their world, in their life. And sometimes that's very beneficial because it helps them make progress. But at other times, I think that that can spiral out of control. Mm-hmm. One negative thing, one little setback. PT didn't go well one day, end of the world, mm-hmm. right? PT goes great, you're on a high. The athlete is going through both of these phases. And for somebody on the outside, the caregiver, they can see the overall picture. They can see what's happening. They might know what the athlete is experiencing in some regard more than the athlete knows because the athlete is just so caught up in their internal that I do think that it's important that that outside caregiver calls out the athlete and says, hey, gives them a little check to say, listen, I understand things aren't going well, but you're quite angry at the moment. And and maybe let's talk through this, at least be aware of it. I think that that can recenter the athlete, bring them Mm -hmm. back into a good place because they just need that cue. Yeah. Yeah. A cue is a good way of saying it. And it really needs to be done compassionately. I just always try to remember this person is trying to establish equilibrium after Mm -hmm. being so rattled and so derailed and taken off the narrative of the, what they thought their life was going to be for the next season or the next year, the next couple of years, they're doing the best they can. So the more compassionate you can be the better. I've got a question for Julie. So Julie works with all levels of athletes, but some really highly paid professionals. Mm-hmm. Are they more or less fragile at a time of devastating injury? Because they've got a loss of income, potentially. Do you treat them any differently? In my experience, the professional athletes that I work with, I would say they're just as fragile to all the emotional sequelae that we've been describing but they also tend to have more resources and access to a lot of different medical options, whether it's an NHL player or an endurance, you know, top endurance athlete. So they have more freedom, I think, to devote all the time and resources to their healing process. So I don't think I treat them differently. I'm just aware that they are more privileged to be able to Interesting. put that time and energy towards their healing. I think that's a really good point because those elite athletes know that a good team is taking care of them and it's going to take care of them right away. I've talked to a lot of amateur athletes who get an injury and they don't know where to start Mm -hmm. and they don't have an experienced team telling them what they need to be doing. Right. So for example, like, you know, a female pro cyclist, now it's better, but, you know, 10 years ago or so, or even five years ago or four years ago here, or even today, if you're still on a, a smaller team that doesn't have, if you're not getting paid and you have injuries, I mean, you're really stuck. You need help and you're stuck yeah. financially. It's not a good situation. And just because you've got a pro contract doesn't mean you're making a lot of money. No. <laughs> so I think the final place we need to go, and, and we've actually been quite positive here, so I hate to kind of take it a slightly negative direction, but hopefully we can finish with a, a positive take on this is sometimes people are just never the same after an injury. Either physically they don't fully recover, or I I know athletes that physically are back to 100%, but mentally are never quite the same after that injury. Let's talk a little bit about that. What's 
your experience working with athletes who have had to face that, how do you approach it? I think it's mostly Julie's area, but for me, again, it's that mourning who you were and celebrating, trying to celebrate who you are now. Is it a fear of getting hurt again? Is the reason they're not back on the ice or back on their bike? That injury hurts so bad, I'm afraid of it. Or they can't compete to the level they were. So for me, and, and I send them to Julie, I said, this, you've got you've got to mourn who you were, you gotta celebrate who you're becoming, and here's a name and a number for you. <laughs> 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 Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's all yours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fear of injury, re-injury is a whole topic unto itself. But uh, I mean there are other reasons why people tend to hold themselves back after coming back physically. It could be that they know they don't have that many years left in their sport, so they don't feel like risking as much as they used to. It could be a contract year, so they're you know they have to, they feel like they want to be more conservative and um, less risky for those reasons too. I mean, certainly the trauma of such a severe impact is a major reason that tends to hold people back. And you know, there's a lot of different types of work you can do with trauma and trauma-related responses that help somebody heal, and it takes time. Well, like Rob, I broke my hip, but I broke mine in Moab. And, you know, a year later, I said, I have to go ride that section again. Mm -hmm. They'll get back on the horse, you know. I'm 73, so I don't ride mountain bikes like I I still ride a lot, but I I don't ride sections like I used to with the same, you know, (laughs) throw caution to the wind. But I had to go back and ride that section. I've ridden it multiple times since. So I don't know. That was just me having to go, go back and do it again. Yeah, I think it's important that people go through the process that they need to mentally get over that. And and the reason I say it is that initially I didn't. And I broke my wrist a month or two after being on the bike after breaking my hip, specifically because I got a little bit scared before a technical section and I was going too slow and um, I fell over. And, And in all honesty, it's a section that I've ridden 100 times that I'm probably the only person that's ever broken their wrist on it to be honest. And and it was all because I was in my own head. So we do all have to go through that process. I think that talking with somebody like uh, like Julie, Dr. Emmerman, individuals might not have the ability to do it themselves. And, and working with somebody who is a professional in that area makes huge, huge strides. And if you are trying to do it yourself and you're not making the progress, then you really need to take that step and and talk with somebody who does uh, know how to help. But the other thing is, I think, you know, in the world of elite sport, we all need to accept and and that person needs to accept that injury is a part of it. And so the chances of you having another devastating, horrific incident is pretty small. The chances of you having something like a collarbone or, you know, another smaller issue or setback is probable, depending on how long you're in the sport. But I think incorporating that, like, this is part of what you're signing up for. Isn't the danger of some of the sports what draws us to them? I think we're all trying to experience what our limits are. Yeah. We're always wanting to push them and figure out what they are. I'm sure both of you had the same experience when I was racing full time. I went into every season accepting the fact that I'm going to crash. I'm going to crash multiple times this season. It's just a question, am I just going to take some skin off or am I going to be spending time in the hospital? But you just had to come to terms with that, that it's going to happen. Pretty tough to race bikes and not occasionally take a soil sample. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe the the way to finish this out, if you're, you're willing to talk about this, Dr. Pruitt, is obviously you had a life-changing injury in your youth. 
and went on to be a very high-level, accomplished athlete. I'm wondering if you have any wisdoms to share from your experience, if you're willing. Well, I sure don't talk about it much, but I suffered a gunshot wound to the lower right leg when I was 14, lost the lower part of my right leg, and you know have ridden, been athletic with the prosthesis for almost 60 years now. So I didn't have any role models. The Paralympics didn't exist. Vietnam War was going on, but they they weren't coming back yet, right? So I had zero role models. And my first prosthetist told me that I would never run again, I would never go barefooted, and that I could have a brown pair of shoes and a black pair of shoes. Well, don't tell me never. So I would go barefooted just to wear out feet, just to piss him off. I high jumped, I wrestled. I mean, I, I immediately started to look for my next sport. I mean, when I woke up from surgery, I, I mean, I should have I should have died. But when I woke up, I said, will my new foot have toes and when will I run? And that was my attitude. And that's been my attitude for the rest of my life. So again, I think attitude and personal chutzpah has a lot to do with how people accept and go forward with, with life-changing injuries. It's driven my whole life. It's made me who I was. And I just want to add, I'm extremely grateful that you took your experiences and made your career to be in line with some of your experiences because I remember coming to you when I was, you know, just a very motivated, quite ambitious mountain biker starting out in my whole cycling career. I can't even remember what the injury was at this point, but I just remember feeling like this is where I belong. You're the right person. You're giving me tools. You're giving me a plan. Just all the things that you said, it wasn't like, you know, life is over because I had this injury. It was, no, 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 here's the way you're going to see yourself through this and move forward. But most of my patients never knew I was an amputee. But I'd only use it at a time when I felt like it was a card I needed to play yeah. for this individual, yeah. right? Yeah, I didn't know for years. Yeah, no, and, then that's, and that's a compliment, right? So you go on a bike ride and go, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Look, I'll point out, we've both been doing the Cherry Creek Time Trial, which is this Wednesday series yep. here uh, or in Denver. A couple weeks ago was my first night there. And I'm, let's say, still youngish. You're in your 70s, and I think we had virtually the same time in the time trial. <laughs> Cycling for me, so my whole concept of alternative sport comes from personal experience, right? So I was a football, basketball, traditional sport player. So I had a, I mean, is, is, high, is it high jumping? Is it wrestling? Is it whatever? I found snow skiing, and I could snow ski like everybody else. And they said, well, you need to ride a bike all summer to train for, for the ski season. Well, boom, I became a bike racer, you know. So finding alternative ways to express yourself and cycling let me be normal, which was my whole goal in life. I mean, yes, I've won Paralympic World Championships, but the results that are closest to me are able-bodied state medals and that kind of stuff. Yeah. For an injured person to achieve some type of goal or some type of normality, I think is, is crucial. And how we find that is... Partly guided by people like Julie, partly guided by me, but I think a lot of it's inside. Yeah. I think it's a lot of it's inside. So there's a Japanese term called kintsugi, and I apologize if I am mispronouncing that. But time and time again, I find this term is relevant in my world because I think so many athletes and so much about being an athlete tends to be about striving for the sense of perfection, whether it's physical perfection and performance perfection, which just doesn't really exist. And then especially when you add to that the scars and experiences that, you know, the sandpaper of life comes into play and we, we have these setbacks, 
Kintsugi is a concept in Japanese culture where you have a bowl and you fill in the broken parts of the bowl with gold flakes. And it's a beautiful piece of artwork. And so your story about your experience with your leg just reminded me of that because look at all the renewal and the various incredible ways and how many people have benefited from the ways that you have just manifested your whole experience from the time you were 14. You're very sweet. And I am very aware of that. I, I have a, a framed card on my desk with a gold repaired yeah. bowl. And it's it makes the the piece of art more beautiful because it's been repaired. And right. It's, it's part of its whole story. Yeah. I mean, you've impacted people worldwide in incredible ways. Thank you. And I don't think we have anything to say after that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's shift to our one minutes and Julie that might you might say that that was your one minute take home but uh, do you have anything else you'd like to say yes I think that I would just like to impact upon people the strength of our resilience as humans and you don't have to always find that resiliency alone it can be really hard to find that resiliency alone but as people in general we are remarkably strong and resilient creatures both physically as well as mentally and so just give yourself and others around you the benefit of that doubt. Dr. Pruitt? Finding caregivers that you can communicate with and who listen. I don't think credentials hanging on the wall are necessarily all you should look for in your care team. It has to be somebody who you personally can communicate with well, who you feel like are listening to you. You need to be an active participant in your own care and not be a labile participant, but you need to be an active participant in your own care and find that right individual or team of individuals that you know you're communicating with. But second part of that is don't be afraid or inhibited by seeking professional psychological help. There's a barrier, a social barrier, I think, that some people have. And when they're struggling with their, with their comeback, they need help right? Whether that's the mourning process or the moving forward process. The arms I had to twist to get people to go see Julie or someone like Julie. Get over yourself. Go get help. Rob, I'll uh, throw in mine and then let you finish us out. So mine is all of you listening, whether you're a world tour athlete, a top runner, a world champion triathlete, or a recreational athlete who's just going to the local group ride on the weekend. All of you have been practicing how to maximize your performance, how to get your body to the, the best that you can get it to. You've been doing that through your training, through your planning, through listening to shows like this and, and, and building your skills. Those are the exact skills you need to apply when you are injured. You need to do the same thing. You need to have a plan for it. You need to have a team that is supporting you. You need to figure out what are the, you know, you when you're optimizing your body, you're thinking, of what are my intervals? Well, the equivalent of your intervals are what is your PT? What is the work you need to do to recover? And you need to be as dedicated to that as you have been to your training. And to me, that is the best way to make sure that your body comes out of this in the best place it can be. Rob? Recovering from injury is hard, so just don't get hurt. <laughs> no, short, short of that, because sometimes we don't have control. I think that preparing to come out of 
an injury. Preparing to recover starts long before that injury ever occurred. As we talked about on the mental and the emotional side of things, being a well-rounded person gives you other activities. It gives you other frames of reference for your life. And you have to begin establishing that years before you ever get hurt. The same thing we talked about coming up to an accident scene and what can you do to help in that situation? Well, you need to be prepared ahead of that situation as well with things like first aid, CPR, carrying a satellite communicator. So today is the first day that you should begin getting ready to recover from that injury. Even though that injury, it might be tomorrow, it might be next year, or hopefully it's never. At least you're in the position to do as well by yourself as you possibly can. Finally, let's give Taylor his chance to give some take-home advice. Acceptance is the first step for me, thinking about my experience of really thinking about this pivot. And it's hard to tell yourself to think a certain way, you know, like you can't say, oh, I'm just going to think, I'm just going to say that I accept this now. But there are certain practices that you can explore, like meditation, that can help you when you start to recognize that you're thinking about the past or you're fantasizing about something being different than it is now. So I think focusing on practices that can help you to accept your situation if you're having a hard time with that aspect of it, that's going to help you out a lot. And then just like love the routine that is involved with the recovery from these kind of injuries because it really is can be quite simple and straightforward it can also be complicated but at the root of it doing your rehab every day like don't stop doing the things that you know you need to do just make space for them prioritize them and it doesn't you don't have to do rehab for six hours every day but get your 30 minutes 20 minutes even if it's 10 minutes you know just like applying the mental energy to what you want to do with your body to what you want to heal i think is if you can make that a routine and and stay on that then that's that's what's going to help you out in the long run well fascinating conversation as i I knew it would be whenever we get the the two of you on the show so really appreciate having you here thanks for taking the time it's a real joy having you on the show Thanks. thanks always great to be here it's a pleasure and an honor thanks That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet us at at FastTalkLabs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. Learn from our experts at FastTalkLabs.com or help keep us independent by supporting us on Patreon. For Dr. Julie Emmerman, Dr. Andy Pruitt, Taylor Finney, Neil Henderson, Dr. Scott Frey, Dr. Steven Seiler, and Rob Pickles, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening.